This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you love underground music and movies, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed shirts, vinyl, CDs, and more. Go to portlanddistro.com. Plug in the discount code MikeHill666 for 15% off at portlanddistro.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're here in South Jersey. This week, I got Drew Murphy. How's it going, Drew? I'm fantastic, Mike. How are you? I'm doing okay. The true is uh, our bass player also done, does quite a bit of vocals in the band, as well as the front man of Hammer Fight, and also the front man, Lemmy guy, for, <laughs> uh, for Engine Head, the premier... Motorhead tribute band on the entire East Coast, I'm going to say. If you book us, we will come. <laughs> so for today's, for this week's episode, um, this is like a special year for some of you people out there. This is the 25th anniversary of Metallica's Load Record. Yep. Now, <laughs> that date, for me, wasn't specifically significant. But Drew, Drew, at one time in practice, you reminded me that this was the 25th anniversary. It was a significant year. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> now, I got to be honest with everyone out there. I kind of tapped out with Metallica on the Black Album. You know, I remember buying that record, and um, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, it's a little bit more straightforward. I, I thought that uh, Injustice for All was like the future of heavy metal. When, it, when, it, when that came out and uh, so to follow that up with the Black Album I was like ah, you know this is like I don't know I didn't really know what was going on I didn't really understand the direction the band was going in and then I noticed James Hetfield had a mullet and uh, I think was that also the era where those dudes like one guy had like eyeliner on and stuff no too? no that came with load oh, okay <laughs> alright <laughs> that was the next era okay yeah so looking back the Black Album had some had some bangers on it it, I mean, it is one of the most successful albums of all time, yes. period. Not just for metal. Right. It's probably the most successful metal album ever. So um, whether you like it or not, it's kind of hard to argue with the results. Someone oh, no, likes it, it. It's totally irrelevant whether or not I like it. I'm no. just talking about my own personal experience. Your own personal experience seems to mirror what I hear from a lot of like the OG guys yeah. that came up with Metallica, you know, uh, from the roots of thrash. I'm from the next generation. Right. Like the first album I ever heard that hooked me was Ride the Lightning. Yeah. But this was it was years after it had been out. I was like six years old at this time, and I was like two when that came out. Uh, so Load came out when I was twelve. You know, and I was all you know. So I guess my point of entry was different. I didn't grow up in the thrash scene when sure. Metallica was already gigantic before yeah. I was 10 years old. You know? Right. So, but metal was my favorite thing. So I like, I didn't, it wasn't even as stark for me because I didn't really know, you know, like the contrast of it. It's like, oh, this is just another Metallica album. So was that your entry point with the band too? Uh, with Load? No, yeah, with Metallica. No, no, no. My entry point I was six when my cousin Mark first played me Ride the Lightning. So that, I guess, would have been 1989. And then MTV was all I watched 
when in like the early 90s when the black album came out so i had the black album before load came okay. out yeah right. um and i was all about it like back then guns like metallica and guns and roses and like that type of stuff was my favorite shit in the world and it was all over mtv and the radio so that was convenient for a little kid who didn't know what a show was you know or how to go see a band because it wasn't possible you know, uh, before we get going, I just want to run down some of the uh, some of the details about the record. So, uh, it was released on June fourth, nineteen ninety six. As I mentioned earlier, this is the twenty fifth anniversary of the band. I mean, not today, but this year of the record of the not record. The I'm sorry, the, yeah. this is the fortieth anniversary of the band. Wow, 40, 40, 40 years. Yeah, damn, dude. So yeah. let me say that again. <laughs> it's the twenty fifth anniversary of Load the Record. I've been having a little bit of a rough time lately, so you guys have to excuse me on that. Recorded May 1st, 1995 to February 1st, 1996. Is that right? That's what it says. Okay. (laughs) At the plant in Sausalito, California. Man, imagine having that much time to make a record in the studio every day. That would be great. (laughs) Produced by Bob Rock, James Hetfield, and Lars Ulrich. Okay, so now these, these motherfuckers are in the studio for a year. Yeah, one year. Well, they were all yeah, a whole year, but they spent more than that, at least that much on the black album previous, five years, six years before this, and that made them the biggest band in the world. So I guess you know they probably had a pretty sweet budget. I can't even fathom an entire year in the studio. I mean, do you think a lot of the stuff probably was written over the course of that year? Like, do you think the pro- process was like, okay, we have studio time, we blocked out at twelve months. You know, we have some dem- maybe maybe some demos and like go in there and just kind of hash out. Because I know Bob Rock. From what I know about Bob Rock, he's kind of like like instrumental in crafting some of the material. Yeah, actually, I just saw. Uh, I think it was on Gibson Guitars YouTube channel. They yeah. did like a icon interview or whatever with him, and it was like an hour plus long, and it was great. And really? it was yeah, I yeah. Okay. You'll you'll love it. I'll check it out. Yeah, and it was just really insightful, like him talking about his whole career. And a lot, of, of course, was spent on Metallica, about how you know making them. I guess he was instrumental in a lot of the songwriting, or at least arrangements. Now I remember when I when I first heard the Black Album. Sorry, we're going back. We're kind of like we're gonna bounce around. We're, we're bouncing around because like, this is like the a period. We're both piece. drinking coffee. I've had almost no food, and my coffee has a splash of Metallica's blackened whiskey in it. Oh, right on. A little Irish <laughs> coffee there. A little Irish in there. Yeah. You know. Okay. When when uh, when I first heard the Black Album, I was like, what happened? You know? <laughs> it was like, who's this fucking guy that recorded the record? So Bob Rock. You think that's his real last name? No, I don't. <laughs> Bob Rock. I don't know. You know what? I'm gonna click his wiki page right now. It'll tell us. So I I blamed him for uh, changing the sound of one. Oh my, of my god! It's his real last name, Robert Gen- f- Jens Rock. <laughs> I, I, I find that incredibly hard to believe. He's Canadian. Maybe that's why. Yeah. I don't know. So I thought that was like, from from my point of view, from from where I was at, he ruined the band. <laughs> I mean, I know. My one minuscule opinion about this thing is completely outshined by the multitude of people who started listening to them right around that time. And I think the Black Album and Load propelled Metallica into gigantic 
mainstream success. The type of success you can't come back with from, even if like you don't make a good record again. Like yeah. they Metallica doesn't matter what everything they do immediately comes out as platinum the first week, even now, which is fucking crazy. And no matter what, they will be the headlining act at every show at the biggest, at the biggest venues in the world until the day they decide to stop doing it. And it's been like that for 30 years because of this shit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, that record, it's, uh, it's just funny. Just there, this, this, there's, there's a division that comes along too. Even with like a band like Pantera, I remember like, like a lot of dudes from my era are like, not that they dislike Pantera. Cause I, I surely do not dislike them. I think they're, I give them props. I think Pantera is a solid band. I like Phil Anselmo, you know, creatively. I think he's, you just can't stop that guy. You know what I mean? I, we, I could easily do a whole other show with you just about Pantera. Right. Yeah. But like dudes from your generation, like if I feel like Pantera and like later Metallica were really kind of like more important. They were like more pivotal to like your development. Well, absolutely. Because think of it's I guess if you call it your point of entry. Like when you first get into something and what you discover first, it's always gonna be important to you, even if one day you don't like it, you know? I guess if you grow out of it, that doesn't happen to most metalheads though. They don't no. really grow out of shit. Uh, excuse me. So Pantera was the only newer band that was a successful metal band in the 90s, like, period. Everything else that was around was guys from the 80s that were successful that were chasing grunge stuff or whatever and getting weird. Oh, and yeah. Pantera was the only real metal band that actually, like, got mainstream attention even without even any mainstream... I say mainstream attention because they didn't have mainstream attention, but they had, like, a mainstream audience almost, it felt like. It's like they were the number one metal band of the 90s. That came out in that. They they actually, in my opinion, Pantera championed real heavy metal throughout the entire nineties. Absolutely, I mean? like they they weren't cha- like even like Anthrax and like Death Angel and all those bands. They their their sound changed to kind of like fit the times, and you know we can also say the same thing about Metallica. Yeah, but at the same time, like some of those bands, you can tell they're clearly chasing a trend, right? Because they are trying to stay relevant. Yeah. I don't get that vibe from Load, anything Metallica did, because they didn't need to chase a trend. It felt like they genuinely wanted it, they just didn't care, and they wanted to do something else. I I, I feel that, but also, man, I like, man, like, in uh, Injustice for All, like, I feel like that was, like, there was a point, there was, like, a, a an A or a B scenario at that point, where it's like, we're going to go into this prog era, prog, like, direction, because that record was mad progressive, really. Oh, as, as that's as, my favorite Metallica album. Yeah. Hands. Like, that's part of my preamble of, like, just bullet points I wanted to lay out before, like, we started. So anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, go for it. Oh, yeah. Because, okay, the whole out. premise of this, we haven't yeah. said, was I'm here to defend Load as a record, you know, as a, and a lifelong metal. Now, head. before you di- dive into that, I, I, I went back last week and I listened to the record a couple times. And I don't hate it as much as I did when it first came out. Yeah, I guess now you, like, it's not a shock. You weren't expecting uh, something else, I guess. Well, it, it started like I was when when uh, the Black album came out. I was like, all right, there's like you know, don't tread on me, you know, like sad but true, you know, like parts of Enter Sandman. There was a cool like main riff in that, and I was like, not really what I wanted. I wanted like eight minute songs like they had on Injustice in for All, and then I felt like when Load came out, it was just a further descent down into this like commercial hell that they were going into the thing is though 
most this this album like you listen to it like the songs for the most part they're not commercial they're, no, they're not, not they're not radio yeah. friendly it's not no. stuff that every man's like gonna sit it, this record probably didn't get a lot of repeat listens from you know jerk off joe who only knows what's on the radio right you yeah, know? yeah and if it does he has it and he plays the singles <laughs> Because he's afraid of some of the other stuff. Because this record gets fucking dark. Sure, but another one. But so, so go go run down. Your, I just your, I, I just had three points. Okay, to make. so so hit your thesis my, here. My, well, my, it's just my three points on like knowing, understanding where I'm coming from. Okay, you know, so you like oh, I, gotta, I gotta kill a spider. Um, <laughs> just so you know, like where I'm at as far as you know my mindset with uh, this album and my view of Metallica. So number one, Metallica is the most important band in my life. It's hard to say definitively which one's my favorite. Cause that varies, mm-hmm. you know, okay. I, if it was easy, I'd say motorhead, but Metallica had the biggest impact on me and the, you know, direction my life went in like James Hetfield that with that white Explorer during justice for all era, it's that guy's fault that I don't have a real job and lots of money. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do that. That's fucking cool. And I never stopped. And it's still cool. Okay, number two, my favorite Metallica album is Injustice for All. Right? Like, that's... If I'm going to pick one, it's that one. Okay. You know? And uh, also, this... Everything we have to say here is not about Reload. I don't feel the same way about that album. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really like it. I feel like uh, they should have. It wasn't necessary. It just felt like leftovers that weren't good for this. But Probably this right record, I actually do as a whole. I like it. I think it's a good album. And people are dicks. And they talk a lot of shit without even like knowing what they're talking about. It's like they just heard that one's not good. It's like those assholes will read a headline on like social media without reading the article, and then they go fucking blasting their opinion about something without actually like checking it out. Let me ask you a question, real quick. Okay. Have I have you ever heard me say that I don't like this record? Actually, I mean, I don't I believe it. so. Okay, I, I haven't heard you uh, listen to strong opinion. I don't really. Yeah, I don't. I don't attack Metallica really. I mean, I'll, I'll have a, if someone asks me like, like, oh yeah, I like their earlier records better. You know, or, or they'll, or I'll, my opinion will be exactly what I just said earlier. But I don't, I don't think I ever really attacked this record. But I know a lot of people do, though. Well, I don't think anyone should really like. I think attacking a record is a waste of time. Like, yeah, you shouldn't. If, it's either for you or it's not. It doesn't mean that you should assault the fucking artist for making something because you like something they did before better. Like, perfect example for me is In Flames. Like when I was in my late teens, they were my favorite band in the world. And still to this day, I think their like first five records are flawless. But they haven't made anything in almost twenty years. I have interest in listening to. Right. You know, I don't hate them for it. I don't go trashing the records. I just don't listen to them again after I, re- I'm, you know, I play it. I'm like, no, not for me. Yeah, music's subjective, man. You know, it's like, but you know, there are people out there. There's a bunch of like, you know, neckbeards out there. Yeah, there's who, people that don't have anything to do. Yeah, they just they like talk to shit. smash stuff and ta- you know attack things and you know make themselves feel better about what they like even though you know my favorite is like someone will name like some band that's like impossibly obscure like that maybe they know about like five other people yeah and that'll be their favorite band and then they'll smash a record like like metallica load or like the guys who turn on bands as soon as they achieve the success they've been trying so hard to get their entire lives sure yeah it's like how dare you succeed at your goal yeah i will i will never listen to you again I mean, like, I, I, I think I it's great. It's great that Meta- I mean, I'm, I'm totally. I think that's that's sick that a band like Metallica is I as big as they are. I think metalheads, regardless of what they like, Metallica or not, 
they should be proud of the fact that one of the biggest bands that will ever exist came from the fucking thrash scene. They were kids that started playing it because they thought it was rad and they just worked their way up through every shitty venue and they conquered the world in less than 10 years. At least be proud that it's one of us that can be, you know, counted at like, I guess, like the Mount Rushmore of music. Well, you brought up an interesting point in practice the other week where it was like, you're, you've been in tombs for as long as... Uh, as uh, as long as Cliff Burton Cliff was Burton. in Metallica. <laughs> yeah, I was like, fuck, dude, really? What's such a blink of the eye, man, to think about that dude's career? He was and 24 he, when he died. Dude and, got a lot of shit done, man. Yeah, man. And how how totally, like, you know, that, that guy really made his mark and inspired so many fucking people out there to play and creatively push the bass forward in, in extreme music in a lot of ways. Yeah, he did it. To, I'm a perfect example. It was like, that was one of the reasons I... Gravitated toward bass. Played with his fingers. Yeah. Yeah, like you. Well, the, the first song I ever learned was, or with tabs that I ever taught myself, you know, print print tabs out on the internet back mm-hmm. in the day, uh, was For Whom the Bell Tolls. And was reading those tabs that I learned that intro was a bass. I had no idea. I was 13 years old. I just, I, you know, I didn't know bass players did that. And that kind of changed the course of how I was going to play. I decided to be a pretentious jerk off and try to get real good for a while. <laughs> That's something I always admire about you and Todd and Matt is that you guys actually are good at your instruments, which is admirable, actually. I think that should be like the bottom rung prerequisite just for being in point for point, you know, for being in a band. You should be at, at least good, you know. You shouldn't have to worry about your playing ability if you're step as, at least at a certain level. Once you start gigging regularly or touring, you know, if you aren't good or if you can't play the song, go away, you know. <laughs> My favorite Metallica is um, The Justice for All and Ride the Lightning. Those two records, I think, are amazing albums. You know, and like I said, when there was that rarefied time where it was like the Guns N' Roses Appetite came out and Justice for All came out. And I remember like that following, I would listen to those two records nonstop. And I was like, man, these two bands should go on tour someday. <laughs> but they did, though. Yeah, but in probably the opposite fashion that you thought it would be, like a yeah. huge co-headlining arena tour with drama. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Which is some. There's that documentary that came out that was about chronicling that era, you know, of making the Black Album and then that tour they did with Guns N' Roses. A year and a half of the life of Metallica. Yeah, I've that, seen it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. you know, it has that scene, the famous scene where James James Hetfield's making fun of uh, Guns N' Roses' uh, hospitality rider and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Is in there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great scene. Yeah, it definitely. Uh, yeah, that whole thing's a good thing. Yeah, but uh, but uh, there's some interesting information about the artwork for this record too, which I didn't know about until I dug into this here. Oh, it's gross! Like I didn't even realize like the the correlation between the album artwork and the name of the album until like probably about 20 years after it came out. Uh, it apparently it's a, it's a mixture of jizz and and cow blood, and the art was by. Uh, on Andre Serrano and the title of the piece is simply called Semen and Blood 3 so he's done this before <laughs> <laughs> it's like I well, think actually, it's the like ju- the jizz was cow jizz too which I thought was, oh, I thought oh, no, it was his own it's his own jizz right okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather All source right. I mean, if you're gonna, how are you gonna source that I, I was gonna say that but I was but you I can was buy reading, blood reading. at the butcher shop but I've never seen jizz at the butcher shop but I really don't want to <laughs> 
And uh, according to, uh, you know, James Hetfield in Classic Rock, Lar- this is a quote from that article, Lars and Kirk were very into abstract art, pretending, oh, I'm not going to say what they said they were pretending to be. I think they knew it bugged me. It was a statement around all of that. I love art, but not for the state of shocking others. I think the cover of Load was just a piss take around all that. I just went along with the, with the makeup, makeup and all the crazy blah, blah, blah. Stupid crap that they needed to do, etc. He said something which is not politically correct, which I opted not to say, just to be sensitive to anyone out there who's listening. What 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 page on the Wikipedia was? Oh, <laughs> artwork. I think I know what he said. Yeah, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, I you know, I, I do like how like it's pretty clear that. James Hetfield wasn't stoked on at least the aesthetic that the band was putting out and all the promo photos. And he's just like, whatever, fuck it. I'm a drunk billionaire. I'm 33 years old or 35, whatever yeah. it was. Then who cares? You know, I got to say, James is always the one I kind of related to the most in some ways. Like he's just kind of this regular guy. Yeah. Meat and potatoes, dude. Like metal, you know, play, like to play guitar. Wasn't really into playing solos. Mm-hmm. Rhythm guitarist. Probably one of the best fucking rhythm guitar players in rock, period. There's some I've heard there's some good YouTube videos that just popped up randomly on my feed, but some were just like isolated rhythm tracks that James Hetfield recorded from like the earlier records. It's like listen to how precise this guy was, you know, when he was like 20 years old. It's crazy. Yeah, he's a goddamn robot. Also, one of the things I dug up. Well, this is not really the case on this record because they have different song structures. But back in the old the OG version of the band, like the number of parts in all their songs. Like, in, when there would be a solo, it wouldn't be just, like, the solo over a verse. There would be a whole separate part, a, a whole separate rhythm part where the, that was different, that the solo would go over. And I thought that's just fucking brilliant, really. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that they, like, okay, I guess there's a big four of thrashy. I guess people, we mostly put Megadeth number two kind of similar. But there's a reason that, Metall- like, like there's they're light years ahead of, you know, their number two competitor because of songwriting and accessibility and making people want to listen to yeah, it. Yeah, man. You know, it's just one thing about writing long songs and showing off for guitar players. It's another way to write those long songs and have them to appeal to fucking the average listener and hold their attention. Now, big the big four, you think that was that had to do with, like, like actual legitimately the biggest sales-wise of the four thrash bands? I would probably say yeah, so. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's why... Sales numbers are the reason that Megadeth was two of four when I went to see the Big Four at Yankee Stadium, and Dave Mustaine was butthurt about that, so I heard. But the promoters are like, "Yeah, well, they sell more records than you currently, so suck it." Yeah, I was stoked <laughs> to be just even on that tour, man. Like that guy should stop complaining, man. It's like, fucking dude, he's had a pretty good he's fucking had a, run, man. Yeah, totally, he's had a pretty good, man. Yeah. You know, millions and millions of records sold, like you know. uh yeah, he's got nothing to complain about. And he should, you know, he fucking, he made his bed, man. Actually, I met him recently for the first time ever, uh, and we didn't really meet him. He walked by and said, hey, what's up, man? And he smiled at me, and he kept going. And I was like, oh, wow, Deep Esteem. He said hi to me. So I texted my brother, and uh, that was that. Everyone else there said he was actually a really nice guy. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that he overcame some of his personal, you know, I don't know issues. about like the business politics of what it was like running yeah. the, on that tour because I was there visiting a friend who was working for one of the bands and uh, he had nothing bad to say about Damon Stane. This guy would have told me if he thought he was a prick. 
I saw him backstage at Hellfest the year we played, and um, like he was, uh, he just looked like this little bitter guy, and he had all these like bodyguard types around him. Like I saw a few of those. This yeah. was at the venue in Camden. Uh, yeah, I was there. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you I was, were, yeah. <laughs> well, I was there like all. You were there all, all day. day. I just yeah. came for the show. Yeah, uh, but he had a smile on his face every time he walked oh. by that day. Like I saw him walk by several times out back. And uh, he seemed like he was in a good mood. I was told he smokes a lot of weed these days. Maybe that's why he seemed so jovial. He was just, you know, stoned. That might have something to do with it because he just had this scowl when I saw him. Maybe it was before his uh, explorations into cannabinoids. I don't know. Perhaps. I don't know about uh, what his current weed situation is or how long it's been that way. Now, when when we were talking about the Black Album, I guess I was premature in in the uh, exploration of new hairstyles. And I think that's when on the load era of the band with Metallica, that's when they started. That's when I got serious. That's when all the hair came off and makeup went on Kirk. And I guess some of all of them and some of those photos, I want, man, I, I like that. I don't have any notes. I did. I I thought maybe you had pictures pulled up. Oh no, I don't have any photos here. I just have like, you know, that that's like a very, uh, atypical thing, you know? And, and, and in some ways, even like in the mid nineties, that was kind of the opposite really of what was going on. It wasn't, I mean, maybe Jane's addiction or they were, they were done by then though. All the grunge bands or whatever they had like long hair or whatever, like anyone in Pearl Jam or fucking Soundgarden or fuck. Was that, or, or, Alice in Chains. They would have looked totally at home in like an 80s trash band, you know, just by the, their aesthetics. And they looked like that most through most of their careers. Weird. So this record was uh, five five times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Um, you know, for shipping five million copies in the United States. Yep. Debuted at number one. It was the eighty first, the uh, number eighty one of the entire nineties. Wow. That's not yeah. Damn. It was the uh, in the U.S. It was the fourteenth highest selling highest selling record of '96 too. Now, entire '90s, and that's like all genres of music, right? It says U.S. Billboard Top 200 wow. for the '90s. Yeah. Damn. So that's like you know we had like you know uh, Madonna, Madonna, Pearl <laughs> Jam, Jackson, but not records. Nirvana. Wow, that's that's pretty fucking yeah. impressive, man. Yeah, I want, I'm sure the Black Album's way higher on there too. It's gotta be. Yeah. Now, after uh, you know, we talked about doing this. I there was a, I started listening to the record again, and um, like I said, man, it's um, I I I didn't I enjoyed some of it. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I I had this like negative vibe. To, like the I mean, we gotta remember it's nineteen ninety six or whatever when when I when this fucking record came out, and um, you know, I'm I'm like not at all into like commercial shit at all like i was like way deep into like subterranean stuff so that's why probably my my point of view at that particular period of my life was super down on this kind of thing you probably weren't interested in anything that was going to be played on the radio when it came out not not at all i get that i wasn't that way either like once i hit like yeah 15 16 whatever it was like fuck that dumb bullshit right but now that you know i'm a little bit i'm quite a bit older 25 years older actually to be honest me too I, I've, I've mellowed out I've, you know I, I can enjoy things that i didn't enjoy when i was in my you know mid-20s or whatever and now it's like yeah some of the some of the records some of the stuff on the record actually is pretty enjoyable and um, i'm just gonna run down i have a couple of a couple of favorites here okay yeah, yeah. i marked my favorites and i have notes on every song yeah. 
House that Jack built, I thought was pretty cool. That one always stuck with stuck with me. That one always stuck out in my head. My memory of that is when this album came out, like Doom 2 had just come out too on PC. And I was always hanging out at my friend Doug's house and he nice. had Doom 2 and he had Load. And that song just, the like dark atmosphere the song builds, it went along perfect with, you know, the yeah. hellscape that yep. was Doom 2. Like, and I was 12, so the whole thing's still kind of scary, you know? But it was really fun to play, and that was the perfect soundtrack. This record as a whole, I think, is fucking evil and darkness, yo. I am. Um, I really like Doom too. When I when I when I was uh, you know when when it, I, the first Doom, how could you not? It's fucking amazing, <laughs> I, dude. I there was when that came out. There was I wasn't really working a regular job, so I I would have time where I could I would play that like sixteen hours at sometimes. That sounds crazy, right? Yeah. I would play that I you, all fucking day into the night, into the the wee hours of the morning, man. And that's when I realized that I can't do video games after that era. You know? Yeah, I don't really do them much anymore either. But back then, that was all consuming. Yeah. Uh, until it sleeps. Nice uh, fretless bass intro. Oh, that's my. I have that in my notes too. Really? There, there you go. <laughs> this yeah. song sounds like another song, though. Like I can I can't. I was. I've been going through a bunch of records and trying to find stuff like on like spotify that it that this song reminds me of another song like a metallica like, song or someone else no 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 like a, like a def leppard song or something oh and i, I with def leppard i i, I kind of i didn't like what Power part Man. is it just like kind of the guitar part in the chorus like is that oh yeah yeah okay that part that reminds me of another song. So anyone out there is listening and they know this song that we're talking about that it reminds me of. Yeah, let us know. Hit me up. Uh, because I thought it was like a Def Leppard song, but I, I really stopped listening to Def Leppard after High and Dry came out. and Or, or I I didn't know about the band when that record came out, but when, when Pyromania came out, I was like, eh, I don't really care for this stuff. But So I only really liked those first two Def Leppard records. But there's some band in the 80s that the the sort of uh, the, the verse of this song, it reminds me of them. I don't know, and I can't figure out what song it is. Yeah, I don't know. I got nothing. One other note I had for this one is just uh, the lyrics. It just says lyrics because I know the song is basically about James Hetfield's mom dying of cancer. Dude, heavy shit. And when you know that, like, it's even heavier than it sounds like, all right, this is pretty dark, you know? And the, this album always stood out, and it kind of set the tone up for me as far as writing lyrics down the road in my life. Like the way it like whether the song is stupid or not, it never sounds stupid the way James Hetfield, like his choice of words and his phrasing, like always sounds like very like poetic and like sure. like I fucking love it. Yeah. You know? No, I, I give James Hetfield is a great Especially song on this record, I yeah. think like the like Reload has some of the dumbest lyrics I've ever heard. And that came right out right after this. But and then my, my other my other go to on this is Thorn Within, which is a total Danzig rip. What Danzig song? I don't well just the whole all right, well there's that blues that There's a lot of blues on this record. But the 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 rip the riff, it's not I'm not saying he ripped off Danzig, but it sounds like it sounds like a Danzig song. I could I, I, I could see that. Which I think is interesting because those guys were huge Sam Hain and Misfits fans and they have had they have like a relationship with Glenn Danzig. Yeah, they've toured together. Like yeah. they, you know, uh I read <laughs> that when they were doing um the original Garage Days and they recorded uh, Green Hell, 
none of the lyrics were ever printed anywhere in any of the Misfits records. So apparently, like they, James, her James Hetfield said this in an interview. They like I think uh, he reached out to Danzig for the lyrics, and he said Danzig gave him lyrics on a couple occasions for it, and they were different every time. Oh wow! <laughs> sure, I could see that. Yeah. Also, I heard I read somewhere that early Danzig demos members of Metallica actually were part of that songwriting effort. Yeah. Yeah, they 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 maybe That's they didn't cool. write the riffs, but like there was some. But when they were putting the spitballing ideas with Mr. D- Mr. Danzig, yeah, because like Sam Hain was supposed to be the the band that got signed, so there was this like weird netherworld between Sam Hain and Danzig, like the the band Danzig, and there was like a members thing going on for a while. So I believe when I was researching for when I, when I used to do Metal Matters, we were talking about Sam Hain and Danzig, like that crossover period. There were there was a there was there are recordings out there which will probably never get released demo recordings of James and um, playing some of those songs as well as Kirk playing playing some of that stuff too. That's pretty dope. I had no yeah. idea about that, yeah. that was a thing. So those are the three songs that I think stand out on the record. And and like I said, I, I in general I like the album a lot more than I remembered liking it. So. You got you got your your. Analysis. Oh, I have some of my favorites. I'll give you I'll give you a couple of some of my favorite. I, I like those songs a lot that you mentioned, but they weren't marked with a little pentagram in my notebook. And that's what made, oh, okay. those, that was my mark to nice. say these ones stand out to me. Uh, you say two by four house of Jack built was that the one? House but house of Jack. Built. Okay, yeah, that was one of them, just because of the whole doom thing. Bleeding me was one of my favorites. It's you know law. It's uh, that one's just uh. The sense of self-loathing that comes across in that song is something that I've been able to relate to since the first time I heard it. Which is, and oh, yeah. it's just, it's, you know, long, but it doesn't get repetitive. And it's, you can feel the pain in that man when he's singing and you believe it. Uh, another one of my favorites is Wasting My Hate. You know, that's one of the short rockers on the song. Sure. Yep. And uh, I just have written here, I fucking love this song. That's <laughs> a good one. I also remember the, the the main like intro riff, like when it comes in and gets heavy, was used in the commercials for that uh, contest MTV had for Metallica to come play at your house. They sent them over in a fucking truck. Do you remember do, that? I do remember that. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember. I don't know why I remember that little riff being in the at like the very end of the commercial. Maybe that's why uh, it always stuck out to me. But another one, Ronnie, is one of my favorite songs, and I don't think I'd ever heard anyone ever talk about this song. It's that, at the that end of the record. It wouldn't be one that I would reach for, but yeah, that, that song's pretty cool. I just kind of loved like the bluesy, heavy nature of it. And um, this came out pre-Columbine, and I, no one ever called out Metallica for writing a song about a kid who went to school and shot everyone, which is exactly what this song is. They went after a ton of other bands, and this one flew oh, beneath know. the radar. Marilyn Manson, too. Marilyn yeah. Manson got like... Somehow. He got he got berated, but no one no I don't think anyone noticed that this that was a thing because I didn't hear anyone say, say a fucking word about it. But that's not why I like the song. I just you know think the song's fucking catchy and I like the riffs. So you don't back reload at all. It's got its moments. Uh, there's one or two songs on it that uh, I'll go back and re-listen to, but for the most part, it just feels like a lesser version of this. Now, my memory is a little foggy around this period of time. That was like the, um, like, was that, was that like presented as like a sort of like a B-side, B-sides collection or something like that? I think their original intention was for it to be a double album with this. 
Um, but I think management label like pressured them just like make two different records, whatever. Because then you can, I guess, sell more records overall. <laughs> I'm assuming that when was you the sell f- records yeah. like that, I guess that's a good strategy. Yeah, exactly. Damn. Yeah, because they were all recorded, I think, in like the same general chunk. Huh. I guess they probably like were thinking about Guns N' Roses, uh, Use Your Illusion. One and two. Yeah, but those came out at like the exact same time. There was a year. There was like two years between load and reload. Yeah. At least. What's your take on that, man? The use your illusion thing. Uh, I think it's great and a little grandiose, maybe a little overblown in parts. But I still love those records. I don't know about the release strategy. It definitely worked for them. Well, I bought you know. both of them. I didn't because they had a parental advisory stickers on it, and I was ten. My mom wouldn't get me that one. Yeah, it bummed me out. Wow. So I would, I remember calling the radio and requesting Estranged so I could record it on a cassette. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I guess like the thing is too, it's like, it's, it's related, I guess, to the load reload thing is that, okay, you know, you go in there, you make an album, you know, if, if you're in there for a year, like they were, there's some, there's some throwaway songs, right? And there's some great ones. And there might be like, Okay, you make one record, all your best material, and then it's just like, all right, we got this other thing that we're gonna put out, and like maybe like the best of the ones that didn't make the first cut are still pretty good, but then the rest are just like meh. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess it's easier to be meh when you already have like a multi million dollar budget, yeah, and, totally. and you've already succeeded as more so than anyone could ever imagine. But I guess like as far as like even like on a budget level, it's like. The recording is probably already that was that one year budget of yeah. that period, and then just the the marketing and manufacturer was like separated into two entities. But they were just like, yeah, we'll make all that money back real quick, you know. With Guns and Roses, those the, am I wrong that did those albums both come out the same day, or were they like a week or two apart? Oh no, they came out on the same day. That's what I thought. Yeah. I remember exactly the circumstances. I was living in Florida at the time, and uh, and like. I remember that that came out and I was looking forward to that. And I, I was like, okay, cool. I heard Civil War and I heard You Could Be Mine because that was in the Terminator 2 record. Uh, I fucking love that song. That song's that fucking... Song's a fucking rocker. Now, those two songs were great. But like so, like most of the record did not rise to that level, in my opinion. There's a lot of filler. Yeah, man. I think you could have cut those the filler out and made one stellar record. That's the point Because I Appetite... Is like the perfect cohesive hard rock, you know, heavy metal album of its day. It's perfect. There's not a fucking clunker on it. The whole thing played through is just a flawless album, and it's got balls and dirt and totally. Man. I love everything about yeah. it. And I kind of wish wish that you know maybe they just were a little bit more uh, you know brutal with the scalpel of editing when it came to that material for Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and made just one sick record. I think there was someone involved in the writing process that was a real stickler for things and made working with it difficult. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. Was his name, uh, I don't want to name names, but was his name Axel Rose? <laughs> yeah, I think so. That was the one. <laughs> w. Axel Rose, as I said on his tombstone in the video for November Rain. <laughs> Dude, you know what song I didn't like initially? It was November Rain, but I like it now. Oh, dude, I love that when it came out. But yeah. I was all I was, you know, of a different generation. But uh the solo in that second solo. I mean, there's is is it it's one of those epic songs with several solo sections, but the one where Slash is playing at the end of the fucking cliff in the video. Oh yeah. It's so fucking good. 
I've grown. I used to not really like Slash so much as a guitarist, but I'm starting to really. Because my whole thing with Guns N' Roses is like Izzy was the man. Like he was the guy. Like him and Axel were like the duo, and like Appetite has always been my favorite record by them. And I figured like Izzy was like the, the architect of that sound, kind of. And then like, and I just was never really that stoked on um on Slash's soloing. But as time went on, I start really appreciating his what he's playing is what he does with his playing i've appreciated songs. it more as i got older yeah. like it's when i first noticed it i was too young to play sure then you start playing and you're like well he's not shreddy mcshred fingers yeah, over like here or like, you, know? you know trey isaac though and you get like a little that, older yeah. and you realize oh that's not important no one cares how many notes you can play in the grand scheme of things like i heard the dude from alexi lehu from children of bodom he said uh, an interview with him where he said he heard some girl singing along to a C.C. DeVille solo and that he never forgot that that influenced him. Like if you write a solo you can sing along to, that's better. doesn't matter how many fucking notes you could play. And that's what slashes solos. I'm hearing that November Rain one in my head right now. And it's a fucking catchy melody. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Now, the ironic thing is I always really like David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. And he's like kind of a similar player. Like he's not real flashy, but melodic and like the the solos are like musical, you know. And yeah, yeah. And but somehow I always like David Gilmore. And then Slash. It's only been like in the last like I would say the last two months that I really started really liking his soloing. And I don't know. I've been like over the last like month or so. I've had to drive around a lot between different states and for personal reasons, and uh, been been listening to classic rock radio. And uh, you know, November Rain is like kind of in heavy rotation. You have a drive between Jersey, New York, and Connecticut, and Massachusetts, and pick your you know make take your choice of all the myriad of classic rock stations that are in that that region, the Northeast. They, they, they're all basically taking the same programming yeah, instructions it's basically the same program so november rain comes up a lot and like you know uh sweet child of mine and all that and um even axel's voice man when you put it in the context of classic rock he's got kind of a like a classic sounding voice man it's very unique too yeah there's he doesn't sound like anyone else you're not going to confuse him for some other guy and, and like all of the bands like from LA from that era with, I mean you know, now we're talking about Guns N' Roses but like like the um, like you're not going to get like Poison or Motley Crue being played on like a classic rock station but you get Guns N' Roses you you, you might every once in a while you'll get like uh, you know uh, every rose has a store you'll get the ballads right right you know but they haven't ascended in the ranks though like Guns N' Roses have like, no. like Guns N' Roses are like some people put them in the same realm as Zeppelin, Sabbath, and like Aerosmith. They're as successful, and, and that's the point. If, if you're just talking numbers, they're up there. But also just creatively too. Yeah, you know, I think that they're they're in that same realm. You know, and then you'll hear stuff off of Load, and you'll hear, uh, you know, Enter Sandman, you know, Black Album, and like now that's even more significant in some ways is because. Guns N' Roses were never really like an underground band. Like they were part of a, a scene that was expected to succeed in a certain way. Yeah, like they were a part of the underground of like the biggest, the next step is right. the big leagues. It's not like they didn't fucking eat shit in a van right. for like years. But integrity, like that was never really part of the program for them. You know what I mean? Like no. having like 
you know, yeah, man, the scene or whatever. You know, that was never they really. Fuck they wanted to be rock stars. Yeah, they wanted to be rock stars. Thrash, the thrash metal scene was more like halfway between like punk and hardcore and and new wave of British heavy metal. And they, had and they hated the scene Guns N' Roses came from. They hated the scene Guns N' Roses. So they, there was that thing that happens in punk music with some, with the thrash scene where it's like, oh, you know, it's. You got to stay true. You know, you got to stay, you know. You mean you can't have, you can't have success. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, you can't turn this into a job or you're yeah. a poser. So Metallica, you know, and like I, this, this goes back to like, you know, like who am I to like criticize anyone's choices or whatever, but they, through the success of all this, these last couple, those last two records they did, or those two records, Black Album and Load, out of a, they started way lower in the subterranean world of of the music industry. They you know? did eat shit in a van. Yeah, they did. You know? They were yeah. like out there, like on these like you know four band bills, and you know traveling across the country and Europe. And you I know. know I've met a guy once who told me about how he saw Metallica at a skating rink in like Perth, Amboy, New Jersey, yeah. or some shit like that with Dave Mustaine. Yep. You know. Yeah, playing at Lemoore's in Brooklyn and stuff like that, and you know, yeah. like you know, small ass rooms, you know being on the road like Guns N' Roses the, I, my they impression, probably never played a skating rink probably not man yeah. and I know they did one tour that was like four shows up to Seattle or whatever yeah I heard, and of, then, I heard that story like they just and they, then they LA. opened for Aerosmith yeah and they just played in LA then they got signed to a major label like they didn't have to bang it out like they're on Megaforce Records and stuff like that you know yeah so the fact that Metallica was able to go from minus five to zero and then from zero all the way to the heights that they were at on the strength of load and reload and the work they put in prior to that, but load and load, I'm oh, sorry, load and reload, uh, black album and load. That was the one that was like the, you know, the, the nitro part. That was like the shifter. Like when you, you yeah. put it in the nitrous system and you blast, blast it's into the point future. of no return, point of no return yeah. for them. Yeah. It's like too big to fail at that point. Exactly. Even too when they put out fail. things that everybody hates, it's still a huge success numbers wise. And everyone still comes to see them. I, I will always go see them because they fuck. They know what to play live, and they put on an awesome fucking see, show. Yeah, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen Metallica since Injustice for All tour. Well, next time they come around, let's go see Metallica. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm I'm down with that. All right, you talk me into it. Like this yeah, this really conversation twist is twisting my arm to yeah. go see them again because I, I it's been however many years, like th- fucking thirty years, I haven't seen them. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, that was um. So yeah, I don't know. Like, I I back this record now, you know, and it, and it is it it's no one it it didn't really sound like anything at the time at all, you know. There's a couple of things I don't like on it, like the slide guitar. Oh, that's in my notes too. <laughs> what song was it? Because I, like, I heard that on my like re-listen, I was like, "Is that a fucking guitar slide?" Yeah, dude. And it's all over the record too. Like it's in yeah. the first song. I have it, like you know, on "Ain't My Bitch." Uh, there's that whole solo was like with a slide guitar and it pops up several times over the record. I didn't really note on it again, but I don't think they ever really came back to that again. No, that was probably, yeah, like, you know, a bad idea. Kirk got a, got a, bought a slide for the first time. He's like, Hey guys, check this out. Yeah. Let him do it. Only there's a, a few people who can pull that off. I don't think it's super out of place on most of these songs. I can understand why I might, why you might not like it, but I don't think it's always out of place. Do you think that Kirk, uh, that Kirk Hammett played rhythm guitar in this too? Because you know, historically, all the other records, James just did everything, and then Kirk would just—he might have done some. I have a feeling this was album was pretty well documented in its creation, so there's probably like we could probably actually find out for certain, right? You know, uh, 
I would still imagine that James Sudfield probably did the majority of the rhythm tracks. Sure. You know, why, why fuck with that? Of course, you've seen some kind of monster, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah, and that everyone talk. Lots of people talk shit on that, and I understand why they would. I mean, it was a bold move for them to let that come out, and it's still, in the grand scheme of things, was a huge success. The album that it was supposed to promote sold millions of copies, and it's the one album in my mind where it that doesn't exist. Yeah, like I don't acknowledge Saint Anger because I hate really? it. Yeah, because that record was whack. Yeah, yeah. Like what the fuck, guys? Like why would you do this? Like, all right, were, we talked earlier about them not their transition in the '90s feeling less like trend chasing than some of the other bands. Um, this album, they even it, it's documented in the movie about no solos because there weren't solos then and Kirk Hammond said it himself is like that dates it to this period and he was fucking right absolutely you can't have seven minute long songs with like that are mostly the same riff without a guitar solo in it like what the fuck is wrong with you guys come on and and then from from Kirk's perspective that's why he's in the band it's like why the fuck is he even there yeah (laughs) like he doesn't like historically didn't play any of the rhythm guitar tracks in the record and you're not having any solos so I don't know why show up to work it's fucking dumb and that was the record, the transition from having Jason Newstead out of the band. and um, That was the last one they did with Bob Rock, too. Bob Rock, there was a f- period, there was like a fantasy where he thought he was actually going to be the bass player. They talk about that in that Icon uh, interview <laughs> thing. He never wanted to be in the band. No? No. No. Huh. He said it was it nice sure to the play. It seems that way in the movie. No, it definitely seems that way about the therapist guy. Yeah. You know. I mean, I don't know. Bob uh, Rock uh, seemed like, seemed like he enjoyed his time playing bass, but he it seems mm-hmm. like I I believe him when he says he was never interested in becoming a member of the band because he helped them audition other people. That's know? true. They had all kinds of guys show up for that. Yeah, dude from Coc, like uh, all these all these yeah, Pepper Keenan, Pepper Keenan, yeah, fucking Twiggy Ramirez, uh, dude from Soundgarden. And the way they edited the movie, it made it kind of made all those other guys look like schlubs while they're playing. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. But I think they made they picked the right guy. That guy's been in the band longer than Jason Newstead was at this point. Yeah, but all, fucking also awesome. that dude is an incredible player. He's too. perfect. He's amazing. Yeah. He's that dude, Robert Trujillo. Yeah. Yeah. He came from fucking he was in Ozzy and before that he was in Suicidal Tendencies and uh Infectious, Infectious Grooves. Grooves. He's got a that's a pretty solid, you know, resume. Right. Yeah. But he's definitely like a technician though, too. Yeah, and he looks cool on stage too, which is always important, you know? Way different though than the other guys. Totally, he's got like a basketball. Shirt Everyone's on super and... unique, you know. Yeah, he, he he was the right choice. Fits in well, but uh, I don't know. Hello? Do you know Newstead played in Voivod briefly? Yeah, I know. Like right after he left Metallica, I, Voivod never really like grabbed me. There's certain I I like their entire catalog, but like um, that's because like they were like one of the bands that I got into when I was a kid, you know, and it was like. They always had like one foot like in this kind of weird punk vibe and then one foot in metal, one foot in thrash. And it was just like this very... There's a lot of weird shit going on. Very weird. They had cool imagery. You know, the the artwork was, was always like interesting to me, you know, and this kind of like dark tech, technocratic... No, I always thought their their artwork and imagery was cool. I guess when I first it was too advanced for me when I was younger. It was, you know, it was, uh, there was a lot of layers there, a lot to swallow. 
there was a, they came around at that period where I was like, what is this? This metal or punk? You know, like I, I had to know what it was like in order to, yeah, to process put a fucking it. title on it. Yeah. But then it was just like, cause like the really early, early stuff was like super noisy, like kind of punk sounding stuff, you know? And then it kind of branched out. And then there's this one record called Phobos, which is like unique for, for even for them. It doesn't sound like any of their albums. And, um, yeah, they but it's is I that think it, their load. Um, I well, that's a that's a record that most fans don't like. I feel so like I, I feel like the these albums, uh, this part of Metallica's career is a good way. Like it's used a lot as metaphor now, describing like a band's trajectory. It's like uh, it's like their load, you know, where I guess it's panned by the hardcore fans because for being so different, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just in my head. I wonder what these guys, I, I, the members of the band, actually give to think about it. They're Metallica? Like, yeah. Like, I wonder well, if... That little like, snippet you read from James Hetfield earlier, I saw, like, a more longer clip of him talking about that. Like, he wouldn't have done it that way if he could do it over again, it seems. Really? Yeah. But, I mean, that's just him, though. I wonder what, it's like, just him, yeah. I wonder what, like, Lars and... Lars probably like, fucking loves it. Probably, he probably, probably has a fucking long, drawn-out, dumb explanation as to why it's fucking art. He's like... He's like, see this Picasso original that I have hanging on my wall? <laughs> I was able to purchase that off of the royalties from this record. So I think I love this album. You do a pretty good Lars. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my favorite quotes are from him, man. And you know what's funny? Like, even in, in, um, in uh, Some Kind of Monster, the way that film was edited, I, ha- I have the, like, the, I bought it on DVD, like, before there were Blu-rays or a thing. And there's like extended interviews with him on there, right? He comes off as less of a dick in the longer form interviews. No, I used to think he was a dick and the more more I... Uh, he, he's probably the coolest guy. and He's probably be the one that would be the most fun to hang out with one-on-one. Yeah. You know, you could go have a drink with him and he'd probably just be a fun asshole to hang out with. And he's also the reason Metallica's as big as they are. Absolutely, he's, man. In, I wish I would have known to do this in my younger days. He spent more time practicing his business shops and his drums, and that's way more fucking important than your fucking, you know, your your musical chops. And uh, I think that's you know it shows with this band. Yeah, but you got you got to have some a product that's marketable in order to well, to really have, yeah you know what exactly I mean? he yeah. had the product. So, he also was good. He knew how to arra- help arrange and write awesome songs. He wasn't the best tactician at the drums. It seems like he was really trying up until Justice. And then once he, they got that fucking Black Album money, he's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll edit everything in Pro Tools. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and also he was in that Anvil documentary too. He's in, in a uh, lot of fucking There's always, if you want to talk about stuff from the 80s, like metal bands from the 80s, Lars probably will pop up with opinions about it. Yeah. But he, um, he was all over that, which I thought was cool. Because I remember in that Anvil documentary, there was like a scene when they were at Vakken and Michael Schenker like pretending that he didn't know them. Really? Yeah, like they're like, hey, Michael, that one dude lips. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was like watching a, like, a little kid dude, like running through that, like the Toys R Us of his heroes. Punch Michael. And I love the Michael Schenker group and the Scorpions, but it's like, it made me want to punch that guy in the fucking head, man. Because like, I'm like, dude, just be cool to the guy. You yeah, know? right. Anvil is a band that people give a fuck about, you know, on some level. And then when they saw D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, he was just like, Yo, what's up, man? How you doing? You know, he was like, totally fucking cool. He seems like a nice fella. I agree with that. Yeah. And people I, I can corroborate that because they've run into him 
him and his wife in Manhattan. I know people that have like worked at stores that he's come into, and he's been nothing but cool to people who recognize him. And then the Lars, like giving props to them, I thought was cool, man. I just thought the fact that Lars was saying in that documentary that Y&T was like one of his favorite bands of all time. Which is like sick. Lars is not a fucking poser when it comes to the like dude, old metal stuff, you know. One hundred percent, man. He you know? started the first Motorhead fan club in California when he was, you know, yeah. So case I, closed. I've never met the taste. man. I never met the man, but like I, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt. Like a lot of people, you know, like to slam people they have never met before. So you know. Yeah, it's kind of not. A, it's a kind of a shitty thing to do. Yeah. What if like especially see interviews with people like this guy might just be having a bad day. Maybe that's why he seems like an asshole. You know. Yeah, it happens. But uh, but yeah. So going back to Load on its uh, 25 year anniversary, I gotta say, man, I kind of you know I'll probably I'll put this on. There's a handful of tracks on this record that are still in regular rotation with me for 25 years. So yeah, and I've grown up with everyone around me just shitting on it. I'm like, well, I like it, so I'm gonna go listen to it. I gotta say, man, Engine Head has been playing a lot, man, more than Tombs has. Yeah, I mean that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I'm stoked. It's easy, you know. The whole cover band thing is fucking uh, pretty fun to do because everywhere you people know that you know the Motorhead cover band's coming, and they already know the songs. I don't have to sell them. Everybody likes Motorhead, except to play them, and it's super fun. Yeah, there's there's another Motorhead cover band out there too, right? There's one around. Yeah, they <laughs> they played at some venues around here. I heard my brother saw them. He said they were good, but cool. they more like they dressed the part. Oh, they wear like the fucking leather. Yeah, and all like stuff. they're like you know up there looking like Motorhead. Like one guy looks like Fast Eddie kind of. And like, I guess yeah. I just yeah I just know at least the singer seems like he looks he's dressing up like Lemmy. We're not we don't dress up like anyone. They just go play. I mean I have a cowboy hat that I wear or like only when we do those shows, but that's about as close as I get. Well, I haven't haven't seen you guys play a couple times. It's it's fucking fun. It's a fun time. So uh, everyone likes Motorhead. Yeah. So anyone out there in the tri-state area, keep your eye out for Engine Head for sure, man. Maybe Lars Ulrich will book us at a fancy party. He likes Motorhead. Right on. That'd be dope. Once again, who doesn't like Motorhead? Right? <laughs> yeah. Punks, metalheads, everyone. They bridged the gap between it all. That was another band that I had to define. Because uh, I was like, okay, man. Like, I'm looking at the you know the cover of the record, band photo. And I'm like, all right, Motorhead. It's got the umlaut, out, so that's kind of metal, you know? But it's like, are these guys, like, punks? Or are they metal or rock and roll or what like what's their fucking thing man like you know when i was a kid yeah they were the one like if you walk into a show in a motorhead shirt you're safe from all fucking factions you're cool on everyone's book and that was the other thing too it was like i saw like dudes with like mohawks wearing motorhead gear and i saw long hairs wearing it Mm -hmm. you know they traditionally didn't get along you know back in the day even when i was growing up you know up until the early 2000s it was still a clash like punk skins metalheads no one liked each other well, it, and when I was a kid, that was 100%. I imagine it was even worse that back was like, Yeah, kid. that was the, the heyday of, like, you know, people not getting along with based on what how they dressed or what style of music they were into. Yeah, well, they didn't have the internet to hate on each other, so they had to do it <laughs> with their clothes and in person. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thanks for listening, everyone, and, uh, you know, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. Thanks, bye.
but it stays right by my side Your green.